thankful for a church that loves having the children be a part of the assembly. It's a wonderful gift that we have of children who we can love as a body and encourage their parents as they raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I want to thank Sam and and the team, and Emily and Justin, and the others who join us and leading, join together and leading us in worship. It's so wonderful to have these folks with us. Well, good morning, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I pray this Lord's Day morning is encouraging, has been encouraging to you. I know it has been to me. I'm always amazed at our Lord's kindnesses to us, especially when we are hurting. We're hurting, and um, it's just interesting. My, I wonder, I actually have, let me, let me look at something real quick before we start. I, um, I updated my sermon this morning before I came, and it, It isn't. It isn't. I guess the Lord didn't want me to preach that part of it. That's okay. I'll. It's. It's just fine the way it is. So we will. Uh, we'll preach it the way it is. Well, good to have Keith back this morning. Welcome back, brother. Uh, it's good to have him back. And and uh, earlier this week. I stopped by his house. Uh, we were able to spend the morning. I think it was Wednesday, right? When it was, it was it Wednesday. We were able to spend the morning in fellowship. I'm so thankful that he's doing so well. I'm thankful that he was able to make it here this morning. I know he has appreciated the prayers that you have prayed and the help that you have given during this time of recovery. I know that they've they've still got a few more weeks of of recovering and you know the going through the difficulty of getting back to 100%, but I, I trust that he's going to be even better than 100% in terms of what, um, what the Lord has done with, through the doctors and, and helping him with his hip. So, well, I, I, while I was at his place last week, uh, we were able to record a couple of episodes of Fresh Bread. And if you guys have been listening to the podcast, I hope, I hope you've been blessed by them if you've been listening to them. Uh, we have been, Keith and I have been both very blessed in preparing and recording them. The discussions force he and I both to think deeply about the topics that we discuss. I mean, so we have to really think hard and, and answer the questions that are on the table. And so we are so thankful to be able to do that. In the episodes we recorded this past week, we, we discussed the purpose of suffering in the Christian life. It's amazing how God puts us through afflictions. He puts us through trials. As you know, Keith, uh, we just talked about it with his surgery, just had his hip replaced after years of pain, and so thankful that that uh, was able to be done. And Jenny has, has endured this, this uh, condition that she has, and it's hard to even describe the, the things that she's gone through. And she was able to share on fresh bread. You guys will have the gift of hearing some about her story, and I'm so thankful I listened to part of it the, this past Wednesday as we prepared to do our part of the of the podcast. It's going to be, I think, a blessing to our church. So I, I trust that you will listen and be blessed as I was as I heard her speak of her uh, health struggles and, and how the Lord has used them. You know, truly, most of us have been 
affected by suffering in the Christian life. I mean, it's just part of, it's really part of life in this world. It's a life in a fallen world. We, we suffer in a fallen world. As Christians, we also mourn over sin. We mourn over our own sin, we, and we also mourn over the sin that we see around us because we have a longing for something greater. We have a longing for a world where sin doesn't exist, or at least I, I hope you do, and I, I know that I do. I, I, hate, I hate sin. I hate it. I hate it in myself, and I hate it in, as I see it in, you know, in others around me. I hate seeing those things, and I hate seeing the sin in the world, and I know and I long for a day that it's going to be when sin is going to be no more. And I hope you do as well. During my prayers, though, I, for the church, I often quote 2 Corinthians 1, 1-5. through It's actually one of my favorite verses. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, the, the Father of mercies and the God of, all, or God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we'll, we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we have ourselves have been comforted or are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. I mean, that's an amazing, amazing sentence. Amazing two verses there where Paul says that he speaks of this comfort over and over and over, the comforting that we get, the comforting that we get by using, God uses others to give us uh, a comforted, or to, to be able to comfort us and to comfort others with the same comfort by which we're comforted by God. It's amazing to think about that. It's also amazing to think of the sufferings of Christ abounding to us, but so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Paul says that, that God is the Father of mercies, and He is the God of all comfort, and He is the one who has, he is the one who has comforted Him, Paul says, in, his, in all His afflictions. He did this so that Paul could have an understanding to be able to comfort others with that comfort that comes from God. That's an incredible statement that only can be made by a mature believer who truly understands the purpose of suffering in the Christian life. Here's a question. Are you currently going through health issues? Quite possibly God will use you to comfort others afflicted in similar ways. Are you enduring, de- enduring depression, melancholy? You can be hopeful that God will use your struggles to encourage others in similar positions. Are you struggling with your children? Are you struggling being a parent? You, you see, God may be setting you up to help others in the future. As you go through this, and as God comforts you in those things, He could very well be setting you up to help others in a very, in a very similar position. Church, I'm convinced that our godly responses to sin and suffering are the greatest indications of our authentic walk with Christ. If we are truly walking with Christ, then our response to sin will be to hate it and to flee from it. And if we're walking with Christ, if we have an authentic walk with Christ, when we suffer, we will see God firmly in the middle of that. And he, we will see Him using it to His glory. Now that doesn't mean we'll do it up perfectly, right? I mean, it's difficult. How many times have, I mean, even my, in my own heart, as, I, as I've suffered 
as I've struggled and, and went through difficulty, have I cried out to the Lord, why me? Well, you know, this is modeled by the lives in the lives of believers in the pages of Scripture. We can see the responses of men like Paul. We just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Men like David, who wrote many of the Psalms. Uh, we can be encouraged that they struggled with sin and they struggled with suffering. And, and, and they, <clears throat> they rejoice. And we can rejoice because these men mourned over their sin and they rejoiced in their suffering. They, we rejoice because God responded by blessing them for their faithfulness. We see that in the pages of Scripture. Truly, God proved to be faithful to His people again and again and again and again. Well, this morning we're returning to our study in Matthew's Gospel. We've entitled it, The King and His Glory. Today we find ourselves again working through the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be there for several months, maybe even longer than that. We'll see. Specifically, at the rate we're going, it may be several years, but hopefully we'll, get, we'll speed up in a, in, a, in a while. Specifically, we're looking at Jesus' incredible introduction to, to His sermon in Matthew 5, 3-12. This section has been called the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, Jesus gives His followers the path, or we have said the steps, to true blessing and true happiness. As we progress up these steps you will find that they are completely opposite of what the world thinks or what the world teaches. John MacArthur calls them paradoxical or are apparently self-contradictory. The, he says the, the Beatitudes are, are paradoxical because what they promise for what they demand seems to be incongruous and upside down in the eyes of the natural man, end quote. The key then is to recognize that natural man, the natural man, the man in his flesh, cannot truly understand Jesus' teaching. They can't understand it. In other words, the world does, does not get the Beatitudes because they cannot get them. We can only truly get them and truly understand and truly embrace them when we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. I love Paul's explanation in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, now... We have received, this is as Christians, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual depth with spiritual words. But a natural man, get this, but a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. You see, the correct interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the the correct interpretation of the Beatitudes, is foolishness to the world. It's foolishness to the world because they cannot understand the depths of the Spirit of God. In Paul's words, They are spiritually examined. Therefore, they cannot be understood by fleshly men. This may be then, as we go through the Beatitudes, this may be then the most critical study so far in the life of Grace Bible Church. Let me tell you why. Our effectiveness 
as a church and as saints in carrying out the Great Commission greatly depends upon our understanding and living Jesus' words in the Beatitudes. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, Every revival proves clearly that men who are outside the church always become attracted when the church herself begins to function truly as the Christian church. And as individual Christians approximate to the, to the description here given in these Beatitudes, end quote. Basically what he's saying is, is when we start acting like Jesus says we ought to act, then people outside the church church are going to see that and will be attracted to it. So let's give ourselves to this study and to to living out Jesus' description of the Christian life given in these verses. And I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded that the result will be revival within the church. Revival within the church. And possibly revival even in this city and beyond. In any case, I'm convinced the result will glorify our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. I do pray that you would bless this time. I do pray that you would speak, O Lord, through the preaching of the word, and that your word would not return void. In Christ's name, amen. Let's pick up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, in his introduction to his Sermon on the Mount, what we have called, or what I've called, the King's Manifesto for His Kingdom, King Jesus reveals nine steps to your purpose and ultimate blessing in, his, in this life and beyond, and no, I have not become Joel Osteen. I've not become that, right? Step one, possess true poverty. We saw that last week. We'll look at it briefly again today. Step two, persevere in learning what offends God. That's verse four. And we have verses or steps three through nine, but we'll continue to go through those over the next few weeks. As I've said, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. You may recall that from the, last, from the last few verses of Matthew 4, Jesus' Galilean ministry is now in full swing. This was the beginning of his public ministry after the transition from John the Baptist. 
Jesus, is, uh, Jesus was getting a, a lot of attention with his teaching and with his preaching and with his healing ministries. And according to Matthew 4.25, large crowds were following him from around Galilee. Therefore, Jesus took that opportunity as he saw these large crowds. He took that opportunity to give what we've called or what I've called his kingdom manifesto or better known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you may notice that he went up on the mountain according to verse, or chapter 5, verse 1. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, in the first five, four chapters, Matthew showed his readers Jesus' connection with Moses. Now, I would argue that Matthew wanted his Jewish readers to understand or to recognize that Jesus was or is the great prophet who Moses prophesied that Yahweh would raise up from among the people, according to Deuteronomy 18.15. He says, and Moses says in Deuteronomy 18.15, he told the people of Israel, as they were getting ready to go into the promised land, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, you shall listen to him. So in Moses' last address to the people of Israel, he told them that they shall listen to this prophet who was to come. Therefore, when Jesus opened his mouth and began to teach, he did so with great authority. We know that. His authority was so great that the crowds recognized immediately that Jesus was different from their religious leaders. Matthew says in Matthew 7, 28 and 29 that they were absolutely astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. So it just hit differently with, this, with, with Jesus. And, and so therefore, Matthew wanted them to understand. He wanted his readers, because Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, he wanted them to know, he wanted them to understand that Jesus was, in fact, the prophet who was spoken of by Moses. Now last week, we studied Matthew 5.3 which says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we were able to take step one, we took some time during that sermon to understand the nature of blessing. So what, what does it mean? We answered the question, what does it mean to be blessed? Now, we will continue to use the following definition. I actually tweaked it just a little bit from last week, and then we'll continue to do that. I defined blessing as the, as the state of happiness in our inward selves that comes from the acknowledgement of the reality of how fortunate we are to have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. This relationship, this relationship produces an inner bliss and contentment that comes from an ever-increasing recognition of all that God has done for us and that no circumstance or set of circumstances can change our happiness or contentment in Christ. Now that's a mouthful, but I promise you, I promise you that even that definition will fall short uh, to, in some way to the incredible reality of the spiritual blessing that Christ Jesus is describing here. Unlikely, or ultimately that is, Ultimately, any attempt at giving a definition will fall short simply because God Himself is the source of this blessing. And, and who can understand Him, right? Therefore, <clears throat> therefore, we know that we can only be truly blessed by partaking in His divine nature. 
As the psalmist promises, in His presence is fullness of joy, and in His right hand are pleasures forever. Now how, is, how in the world, how in the world as temporal people living in a fallen world, how are we to really understand that? Except to believe that it's true. And get an understanding and, and have a conviction uh, by the Holy Spirit of, of, this, of this, this joy that we have in Christ. Now we also answered the question, who are the blessed? Who are the blessed? Well, the blessed are those who have believed in the promises of Christ and are living in the present reality of the Holy Spirit, living within them with an ever-increasing understanding of what He is accomplishing through them. Let me say that again. The blessed are those who have believed in the promises of Jesus Christ and are living in the present reality of the Holy Spirit within them with an ever-increasing understanding of what He is accomplishing through them. Now last week, after we defined blessing, we looked at the first of those nine steps to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life and beyond. And and let me tell you something. These steps are nothing like the world, nothing like anything the world ever teaches. So let's give step one. This is a review, as I said. Possess true poverty. Look at your Bibles in 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, Jesus doesn't have money in mind when he makes this statement. He's referring to being spiritually destitute or spiritually bankrupt. Ultimately, this describes a person who has come to the very end of themselves. They acknowledge and declare in their hearts that they are spiritually destitute or bankrupt. In other words, they confess their utter unworthiness and complete dependence upon God to save them. They have come to know that there is nothing good in them and that they are in need of God Himself to have mercy on them. They come to recognize their lostness in sin, their hopelessness in life, and their helplessness to save themselves. And they've come to realize, come to the realization that no one other than God Himself can, can save them. They can't do it themselves. There's, nothing, there's no work that they can do uh, to, to make this right. They recognize that apart from Christ Jesus, all men, all women, all children are in fact spiritually bankrupt. They are in fact destitute. And they are in fact beggars. Therefore, they have come to see themselves as nothing more than a beggar before God who cannot even lift their eyes to Him because they are so undone. I think... Last week I gave you James Montgomery Boyce and Thomas Watson's description. I think they're worth repeating. James Montgomery Boyce says to be poor in spirit is to be poor in the inward man, not in outward circumstances. Consequently, to be poor in spirit is to recognize one's poverty spiritually before a holy God. Thomas Watson simply states, poverty of spirit is a kind of self-annihilation. Ultimately, we came to see this as the beginning point of salvation. That's the reason Jesus says, look back at your text in 5.3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the question. Do you want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? Well, I hope your answer is yes. And being poor in spirit is the key that unlocks the door to the kingdom. It is step one, coming to the end of yourself coming to a realization that only God can save you is the key to the kingdom. It's step one. 
Let's continue to look at the introduction to this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen the first step. Let's look at the second of those nine steps to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life and beyond. Step two, persevere in learning what offends God. Persevere in learning what offends God. Look back at your text in 5.4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, as we begin to consider this verse, I want you to notice that Jesus continues to use the word blessed. As we have seen, he, he continues to do this over and over and over. Now, we've learned that this blessing can only come from God. Therefore, I would argue that Jesus is giving us the path to true and ultimate blessing, true and ultimate happiness in this life and beyond. And, and that blessing, that blessing is given to us by God himself. Notice what he says. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, as we consider this verse, I want you to recognize and I want you to work through the cognitive dissonance here. According to the field of psychology, cognitive dissonance is the perception of contradictory information and the mental toll of it. Now, don't worry. Neither am I, have I turned into Joel Osteen, nor have I appealed to psychology. But I want to make a point. As you consider what Jesus is saying, you may notice that these seem to be incompatible, especially when you consider that Jesus is teaching that the state of blessing uh, or true happiness seems to come from being poor in spirit and from mourning. Yet that is exactly what he's saying. According to the theory of cognitive dissonance, when two ideas are not <clears throat> psychologically consistent with each other, we will work to change them or our understanding of them to make them consistent with one another. But I can promise you they are consistent. And I, and I want to show you why. In the case of <clears throat> Matthew 5, 4, in effect, Jesus is saying that blessedness or true happiness comes from mourning. Yet, the world does everything in its power to avoid mourning. So therefore, they're going to do everything in their power to understand this in a different way than what Jesus is saying. You see, the world doesn't want to do anything to do with mourning. Again, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, <clears throat> the philosophy of the world is forget your troubles. Turn your back upon them. <clears throat> seems to be that time of year. Let me start over with that quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the philosophy of the world is forget your troubles. Turn your back upon them. Do everything you can not to face them. Things are bad enough as they are without you going uh, to look for trouble, says the world. Therefore, be as happy as you can. The whole organization of life, the pleasure mania, the money, energy, and enthusiasm that are in expended in entertaining people are just all just an expression of the great aim of the world to get away from this idea of mourning and this spirit of mourning, end quote. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, pleasure brings happiness, money brings happiness, entertainment brings happiness, fame and praise bring happiness, self-expression bring happiness. On the negative side, avoiding pain and trouble and disappointment, frustration and hardships and other problems bring happiness sidestepping those things is necessary before other things can bring full happiness. Throughout history, a basic axiom 
of the world has been that favorable things bring happiness, whereas unfavorable things bring unhappiness. That principle seems so self-evident that most people would not even bother to debate it, end quote. Truth, truthfully, in, a modern, in our modern society, we hate mourning. We are repelled by it. The world wants to separate itself from it. I'm convinced that I'm convinced that many send their parents and grandparents to the old folks' home because they don't want to deal with their own mortality. They don't want to deal with it because they don't want to mourn. They want happiness so that, uh, that, that, so that all that they do, can, uh, they do uh, avoids this idea of mourning. Back in my grandparents' day, my dad's father was born in 1900. He would be 123 year, years old right now. That'd be my grandfather if he were still living. Back then, they grieved their dead in the home, right there in the living room, right there. Yet today, we send them off when they when they can't pull their weight anymore. We send them to the old folks' home when they, you know, when you know when it gets a little hard to, to take care of them. As you may recall, my 100-year-old grandmother just passed away, and, and it reminded me of yesteryear. She died in my sister's living room with the kids playing in the background. Literally, I mean, my, my grandmother's dying, and the kids are playing. It was, a, it was an incredible picture of life and death. My, my sister was mourning the death of her dear grandmother along with the, the rest of the family while her children were tugging on her leg to play. What an amazing picture. An amazing picture of life in the, in the, in, and how life ends in death. Here's what is interesting. While this, while this does illustrate the world's attitude toward mourning, the idea of mourning, you know, that, that, that we want to get away from it, that we don't want it, but I don't think Jesus was actually referring to this type of mourning. To understand Jesus' point, we need to take the time to work through the meaning of the word. So what is, the, what is the meaning of mourning? Well, the Greek word used here has the idea of experiencing sadness as a result of some condition or, or circumstance. Now, there's some legitimate types of mourning. We talked about the death, and we, as, we see, as we discussed, we experience this type of sadness and mourning at the death of, of those close to us. Now, we may also mourn over the loss of friendships due to outside circumstances. Sometimes we lose friends because of whatever's going on in life, and we mourn that. We can even mourn when, when life deals us heavy blows, brings a great sadness to us, and, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a sadness to the circumstances. These are legitimate and common sorrows that we all experience at one time or another, and we need to express these types of sorrows by, by crying and by, by lamenting over them. These responses of, of crying and lamenting and mourning in that way provide us a way, a way to cope. John MacArthur describes it this way, to express these sorrows and cry over them opens an escape valve that keeps our feelings from festering and poisoning our emotions and our whole life. It provides the way for healing just as washing out a wound helps prevent infection, end quote. God has given, this, given us this amazing gift of, of, of expressing our sadness in a way that cleanses us. I'm a guy, I'm a guy, and I don't like admitting that I'm a big old softy, but I am, I am. I was crying the other day in the car as I was listening to a song thinking about my daughter getting married in a month. 
It's true. We all feel better when we've expressed our sadness by crying over the things that have made us sad. We see this type of sadness and mourning on the pages of Scripture. We mourn. We see mourning over death. Abraham, in, in Genesis 23, 1 and 2, he mourned and wept when his wife Sarah died. In, in Genesis 49, 33, Jacob died, and Joseph, his son, responded by, by weeping over him. In Genesis 50.10, it says that he mourned for him for seven days. It says, and, and they came and, and, and they lamented there with a very great and intense lamentation, and he observed seven days of mourning for his father. Our Lord even mourned over, over death during his time on earth. In John 11.35, Jesus wept at the death of his, of his dear friend Lazarus. We, we, can, we can legitimately mourn over loss, over, over the loss of life, and over, even over the, the life's difficulties. We can also mourn, uh, again, over the heavy blows of life. The Apostle Paul wrote to sec- in, uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy to encourage him. Uh, and Paul admonished him in 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. He says this, For this reason I remind you to, to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a power and love and self-discipline. You see, Paul was giving this encouragement because Timothy had been struggling with defeat and discouragement in, in his walk and in his ministry. And evidently, this, uh, this struggle had resulted in many tears. Just listen to Paul's words to Timothy in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I am grateful to God, whom I serve with clear, a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I unceasingly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you. This, listen to this. Having remembered your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. So he's praying for Timothy, remembering those times of mourning that, that Timothy was struggling. He was struggling. He was, he was, he was mourning a struggle. Again, these are legitimate types of, stru- of mourning. It is good when we mourn for a period as, as a way to cleanse us from emotional baggage and, and sadness and loss, but there's also an illegitimate type of mourning. We can take mourning and use it for sinful reasons. Usually we mourn in illegitimate ways to garner attention for ourselves. This is usually for the attention of others, even while we are doing it for God's attention. We can Sometimes, sometimes we can mourn over over unfulfilled desires or plans. You see, people sometimes devise evil in their hearts that is thwarted by God, and, and some have affections that cannot be fulfilled in godly ways. You see, Judas's wicked actions are one example of, of a man who devised evil in his heart, and when he saw that Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, and he said, I have sinned against by betraying innocent blood. Matthew 27, verses 3 and 4. But when he came to see the result of his wicked action, there was a, actions, there was a measure of sadness and remorse. And said another way, he had second thoughts about his actions. Second thoughts. But Matthew doesn't use the same word in Matthew 27, 3. You see, you see he, wasn't, he wasn't mourning in the same way that Jesus is talking about. He wishes it could be undone, but there was no true mourning in Judas's heart. In 2 Samuel 13, 2, there's the example of David's son 
Amnon. Again, these are illegitimate reasons for, for mourning. Scripture said he was so distressed in his lust for his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. His mourning was a, a result of ungodly lust toward his sister. And, and God does not, does not bless or comfort the men like Amnon, David's son, or Judas. This is, a, this is illegitimate mourning. Now there's another type of illegitimate mourning. False piety. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, just a page or two after where we're at, this is later in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He gives the following warning. Matthew 6, 1. Be, beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no re- reward with your Father who is in heaven. In that same section, from 6, 1 on, he gives several examples of how one would do righteous acts to be noticed by men. He warns against advertising how much one gives to the poor in, in Matthew 6, 2. He, uh, he says he also... He also warns against publicly praying just to be seen by men in Matthew 6, 5. And in Matthew 6, 16, he warns against fasting just to be seen by men. Now, this is in Matthew 6, 16 through 18 is a great example of false piety. Listen to Jesus' description. Now, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, uh, and your Father, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So, these hypocrites, they may have been fasting, yet they were show, putting a show of, uh, putting on a show of it. They were neglecting their appearance to be noticed by men, but it was all a show. Again, that reminds me of the Pharisee in Luke eighteen twelve. We talked about him last week. Uh, he proudly proclaimed that he fasted twice a week, yet he was doing this to exalt himself. Jesus reward, uh, warns that these men have their reward in, in full. It's a false piety. It's false mourning, if you will. In his, day, in his day, Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke of something similar. He called it a false puritanism. This is, this is a type of false piety. Listen to this. He states, Martin Lloyd-Jones, false puritanism often manifested itself in an assumed piety. It was not natural. It did not come from within, but people affected and assumed a pious appearance. It almost gave the impression that to be religious was to be miserable. It turned its back upon many things that are perfectly natural and legitimate. In that way, a picture was given of the Christian man that was not attractive. And I think that there was a violent reaction against it, a reaction so violent that it has gone to the other extreme, end quote. Now, we've looked at the meaning of mourning. It's experiencing sadness as a result of some condition. We've looked at legitimate mourning, mourning over the death or, or over life's difficulties. And we've looked at then illegitimate mourning, mourning over unfulfilled lust or evil plans. Now, let's look at what Jesus actually meant in Matthew 5.4. I don't think it was any of those. Matthew 5.4, there, there are several 
different Greek words used in the New Testament to speak of sorrow and mourning. You see, we live in a, a fallen world where sorrow and tragedy are commonplace. We see it all around us, do we not? This has been true from the very beginning and will continue to be true until the Lord returns. The term that Jesus, is used, Jesus uses here describes an incredibly deep and heartfelt grieving. It was generally used to describe the grief of losing a close loved one. In Matthew 16.10, Mark used the, world to, uh, used the word that is to describe the state of the disciples after Jesus died and before they knew He had been raised from the dead. I mean, in Mark 16, 10, 10 and 11, uh, they didn't know that He was going to be raised. They didn't fully understand. And, and the text says that they were, they were mourning and they were crying. It's the same word. We know that they were in deep agony over Jesus' death before they fully understood. But to better understand Jesus' meaning in Matthew 5, 4, we need to look at this considering the context. In this case, we need to see it in light of the progression that we see in the Beatitudes. In step one, we are confronted with our helplessness, we are confronted with our hopelessness, and we are confronted with our lostness in sin. We have come to recognize as believers, as new believers, if you will, we have come to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. You see, we are spiritual beggars in, the, in need of God's grace. Now, this second step, I would argue, is the inevitable result of taking step one. When I'm forced to face myself and I recognize the true extent of God's character, the true extent of His holiness, think Isaiah, when Isaiah said, I am undone, I'm undone, I'm, I'm a sinner, as I stand before you, I can't stand before you because I'm, I'm a sinner who is, who, who is unclean. That's, that should be all of our, that should be every person here should have that same reaction to an understanding of God's holiness. When I am forced to face that, and when I'm forced to contemplate who I should be considering who I am in the light of His holiness, when I consider the life that I'm meant to live in light of His holiness, of the necessity this causes me to mourn my sorry state. But it doesn't end at that. When I examine my life, I begin to see all the ways I sin and fall short of the glory of God. And I begin to mourn. There's, there should be a sadness over my sin. Believers and unbelievers have the capacity to mourn in, in the ways that we've described. They have the capacity. Unbelievers can mourn the loss of loved ones. They can, they can mourn great difficulty in, in their lives. They can, they can mourn over thwarted plans. But the type of mourning that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, can only be truly experienced by those who have taken step one. They possess, those who possess a true poverty of spirit that understand who they are in light of God's holiness. They understand, they've come to get some idea of how far short they fall. Uh, they, they fall well short of God's glory, infinitely short of God's glory, and they come to mourn this. We see some examples of this godly sorrow over sin in, in Scripture. After David sinned against Bathsheba, 
and Uriah and ultimately the Lord. For a long period of time, he didn't have this godly mourning, a godly mourning over sin. He hid his sin. He was silent about it. In, in Psalm 32, 3 and 4, he describes this period. Listen to his words. He says, when I, this is Psalm 32, 3 and 4, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my mourning or through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality drained away as with the heat of summer. Selah. See, David tried to move on with life as if nothing had happened. He tried to hide the lies. He tried to cover up his wicked action. Yet God's hand was heavy upon him. And it was at that point that David owned his sins and he confessed them to God. Listen to his confession and repentance in Psalm 51, 3 and 4. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. End quote. You see, when David confessed his sin and began to mourn over his sin, he was able to proclaim with great joy, how blessed is he, this is Psalm 32, 1 and 2, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He came to that point when he confessed his sin. He was able to mourn over his sin. And Jesus is speaking then of a type of mourning that can only come from a deep and abiding understanding of our sin, a deep and abiding understanding of His holiness, and a deep and abiding understanding of how far, infinitely far, we fall short. Earlier I spoke of this being a paradox. How can we be happy when we, we are mourning? Well, I would argue that this happiness comes as a result of this type of mourning. Remember, God Himself is the source of the blessing. God Himself is the source of the happiness. Therefore, when we come to this place of deep mourning over our sinfulness, we receive God's blessing. We see this with the example of David. He was wasting away until he recognized the utter sinfulness of his actions. He mourned, he confessed, he repented, and God blessed him. question is, how does God bless our mourning? Well, we'll see that next time. Look back at your text in Matthew 5.4. Just real quickly, real quickly, earlier I quoted in my comments, it says real, real quickly, Matthew 5.4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, God is the one who comforts us, right? That's the blessing. That's the blessing. And we're going to dig deeper into that next time. But just remember 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5. I read it as I opened. It is God who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we have also, also been comforted by God. Ultimately, when we come to see and understand our sin, it is God who comforts us. So, 
I wanted to give an illustration of this, but for some reason, I really am having computer difficulties. Let's do this. I don't know why it did this. Well, technology, right? Somebody have the handout. Yep, because it's on the handout, which is weird. Thank you, brother. I got to the end of it, and I realized that um, I had, for whatever reason, my last updates didn't update. So anything from yesterday afternoon all the way till all the way to this morning that I worked on, all of it was gone. And as I was going through, I kept seeing mistakes and errors. I'm like, I thought I fixed that. <laughs> okay, so the question is, how does God bless our morning? Well, we're going to see that next Sunday. But, we, but for now, I want to leave you with the story of George Whitfield's conversion. And I think what you're going to find as you listen to this story, I think what you're going to find is a man who's come to a poverty of spirit, and a man who is mourning over a sin. Listen to this story. It's given by Digby L. James. In the fall of 1732, George Whitfield went to Pembroke College, Oxford, his tuition being funded by acting as servitor for other students. He did all the chores for those whose families could afford to pay for their, to pay for their tuition. Working in an inn had trained him perfectly for such tasks, and this made him popular with wealthier students. He started attending church regularly, singing psalms and praying daily. He was the ideal, an ideal person to join the Methodist, a pejorative name, along with Bible moths and Bible bigots, as they had a similar concern for religion. Their name for themselves was the Holy Club. It was after about a year that he met Charles Wesley. He was invited to breakfast in Charles's room, Charles lent him some books, the most significant of which was Henry Scougal's The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Whitfield recounted of this time. In a short time, he let me have another book entitled The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And though I had fasted and watched and prayed and received the sacrament so long, yet I never knew what true religion was till God sent me that ex excellent treatise by the hands of my never-to-be-forgotten friend. At my first reading, I wondered what the author meant by saying that some falsely placed religion in going to, to church, doing hurt to no one, being constant in the duties of the closet, and now and then reaching out their hands to give alms to poor neighbors. Alas, I thought, if this be not religion, what is? 
God soon showed me, for in reading a few lines further, that true religion was an, an union of the soul with God, and Christ formed within us, and a ray of divine light was instantaneously darted in upon my soul, and from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must be a new creature. This completely undermined Whitfield's beliefs. Everything he had been doing up to this point was without value. He resolved to do everything he could to become a new creature. He worked so hard at it that he nearly killed himself. He began to live by the rigid rules of the Holy Club, accounting for every moment of the day. It did him no good. He felt a load of sin pressing upon him, and nothing took it away. He went to, to extremes, not eating, not speaking. At one point, it was now suggested to me that Jesus Christ was among the wild beasts when he was tempted, and that he should follow his example. So he would go outside and pray in the cold, even lying on the ground for hours. His health began to deteriorate. One of his hands was turning black. His tutor began to worry about him, and there were fears he would die. After seven weeks of sickness, he found he had a thirst which drinking did not allay. He, he remembered that when Christ was near an end of his sufferings, he said, I thirst. And he threw himself on his bed and cried to God, I thirst, I thirst, the first time he had looked outside of himself for help. His load lifted, and he found himself full of joy. The Spirit of mourning was taken from me, and I knew it was truly what it was to truly rejoice in God my Savior. And for some time I could not avoid singing psalms wherever I was. He had become a new creature in Christ. In, in, in a sermon preached near the end of his life, he said, I know the place. It may be superstitious perhaps, but whenever I go to Oxford, I cannot help but running to that place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me. And he gave me new birth. And that's the end of that story. But what I wanted to point you to was he was doing everything right. right? He was doing what he thought would make him a believer. And he was coming, he had to come to the end of himself, did he not? He had to come to the end of himself. He had to mourn over his sin. That's a picture. This is a picture of what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to come to the point where you mourn over sin. And that's exactly what we see in the testimony of George Whitfield. The question is, have you come to the end? Have you come to that place? Have you come to the place where you are poor in spirit? Where you understand that you have nothing to bring to the altar of salvation except for your sin? That you fall woefully short? Have you mourned over your sin? Have you come to see that it's a sin against a holy God and that he needs, you need His grace and His mercy? I pray that you'll come to that point. And I know and I'm persuaded that God will comfort. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, um, in the midst of technical difficulties and struggles, Lord, I pray that your word was preached. I pray that if there be a soul out there or multiple souls who have not come to this poverty of spirit, have not come to this point of 
knowing their need, understanding their need, understanding their destitute, they are destitute before you. Pray that there be anybody here who has not seen their sin for what it truly is. And like Isaiah, crying out that I'm a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. Lord, have mercy on my soul. Like George Whitfield, having thinking, thought that he had done everything, coming to a point of becoming a spiritual beggar, becoming a man who, who knew he, he, that he fell short, and a man who was mourning over his sin. Father, I pray if there be anybody here in that position, that you would convict them. That you would have them come to see how far short they fall. And that they need the Lord Jesus Christ who, who went to the cross. Who bore uh, their sin on the, so, so that they wouldn't have to. If they just call out, if they just cry out right now, be merciful to me. Save me, O Lord. I thirst. I thirst. Lord, we know the promise is that You will save them and that they will thirst no more. 